Welcome to Theory Neutral, the podcast about stuff languages do. I'm Logan. I'm Aiden. And I'm Jacob. And today we are talking about what this podcast is about. Uh, so we'll start off with introducing your hosts. So I'm Logan. Uh, I am a professional software engineer with a master's degree in linguistics because programming pays a lot more than academia. Um, but uh, my background is in computational morphology, and I worked for nine years in a university research lab for language pedagogy. Uh, I'm Aiden. I also have a master's in linguistics, and I'm also not doing things with that that degree professionally anymore. Um, but my background is more in actually like typology and documentary linguistics and trying to understand what is there out in the world? What do languages do? I did my master's thesis on a small, tiny typological question. So this is the kind of stuff that I have some actual background in, but I absolutely love it. And that's why I had that background in it. That's why I got the background in it. So that's why I'm here to talk about it. Okay. All right. Um, I'm Jacob. I'm a student from Germany and I don't have a professional academic background in linguistics i'm just interested in linguistics in general basically um I, my background is actually from conlanging which i found through world building which is we're not going to talk about conlanging a lot here it's more linguistics focused but anyhow um i think it's nice to have some more diverse people in here like linguistics computer scientists and also conlanger like i think uh, both of our other hosts are also conlangers but yep. i think that's my main yep. background <laughs> yeah conlangers right. who liked linguistics so, so much we went and did it in school yep that's that's true that's my plan too <laughs> all right so in this podcast we are going to talk about typology especially some interesting features languages do as we said earlier stuff languages do maybe we're even going to talk about grammars who knows maybe we're going to invite some interesting guests one time um yeah be ready for some interesting facts fun facts and interesting discussions um so let's address the name of the podcast real quick um the name comes from a reading group that uh, Aiden and I have been in for a while, um, where we read grammars of various languages because grammars are cool and languages do neat stuff. And we're um, nerds. And, and we're <laughs> nerds. Um, and uh, we have noticed that different grammars pay differing amounts of attention to the theoretical underpinnings of their descriptions. Uh, sometimes you'll run across a grammar that is so steeped in a particular niche theory that it's just impossible to understand because you went to a different university than the author did. Or uh, that theory isn't used anymore and was discarded 40 years ago. Yes. And uh, we, we came across a grammar that started out in the introduction saying that they were going to attempt to be theory neutral uh, and then immediately went on and talked about things like morphemes, uh, which I just thought was incredibly ironic. Um, and that's going to be kind of the, the focus of our first episode here. Um, you can't really be completely theory neutral because as soon as you make assertions like words exist you're taking a theoretical stance but we really like being as theory neutral as we possibly can be uh and just looking at 
the cool stuff that languages do. Yeah, one of, one of the key points of writing a grammar in my experience of you know doing a documentary grammar is to try and just present the data and explain it to the degree that you you know feel it's necessary to understand what's going on but not saying i have a theoretical agenda i want to push and here's data that that supports that or i believe this one theory is the grand theory that everything should ever always follow and so i am putting this grammar into that theory you want it to be something that anybody can come to with whatever background they have as long as they understand enough linguistics to understand it and get what you put in out of it and that's again that's that's easy to varying degrees because you do have to do some degree of explanation you can't just say here's a sentence i don't know what's happening in it because that's not a grammar anymore that's just a corpus um so a lot of a lot of grammar writing and documentation and then as an extension a lot of typology is trying to figure out how much of this external idea of theory can we put into this how much is helpful how much is unhelpful how much is just wrong and how much do we have to sort of walk that back and say we're going to approach this you know kind of from first principles in a sense um because really what you want to do whenever you're analyzing a language on its own or even in a typological context you know a context of trying to do typologies you want to come at it from its own understanding of itself you don't want to come at a language and say all right i'm going to go find the past tense marker maybe it doesn't have a past tense marker maybe it doesn't have tense maybe it does but it does it in a completely different way like there's you can't come at languages with pre-existing concepts and say we're going to fit all the things into all the boxes that we assume have to exist but on the flip side, there's a lot of boxes that are really helpful to think about cross-linguistically, like the idea of tense, like the idea of case, like the idea of a word that you can't always necessarily go in and say, like, here's our language internal justification for why there's a word. But like, if you don't have words, you can't really talk about anything. So it's, yeah. It's complex. And it goes, it sort of goes to extremes where sometimes you can just sort of say, you know, this is just a category that I'm just going to name off the bat, you know? And then other times it's like, well, if you're like, for example, if you're doing tone, if you're analyzing a tone system in a language, you're going to have to use the, th the framework of autosegmental phonology. And that's just going to have to be what it's going to have to be, because that is the only way that we have come across to make sense of tone at all. To the point that even if you're doing a tone analysis in another framework, like optimality theory, for example, you're going to be bringing in a whole lot of autosegmental terms, autosegmental ways of thinking, because that's just the only way to make sense of tone. It just has to happen. Otherwise, you're describing a bunch of disparate tone phenomena that don't make any sense. I just got to say, as a computational morphologist, I have no idea what a word is. <laughs> Uh, but anyway yes uh, it's one of these frustrating concepts that you know it when you see it which is not great yep. when you're doing science yeah there's also this very interesting distinction which is supposedly theory free which is uh phonological versus morphological word but that's already assuming that's already mm -hmm. assuming mm -hmm. a bunch of things yeah exactly yep. so just to sort of sum up the point like there's only so much theory neutral you can be because 
after a while things just become you know they everything just kind of falls apart i mean I, I guess it's kind of like in mathematics where like not everybody is doing like number theory and basic logic you're just taking those things for granted and uh, people are coming along and doing work with that sure but you don't have to necessarily do that if you're a mathematician so we're gonna try to be as theory neutral as we can be see how well we do but uh moving on to the the main topic of our first episode today uh today we are talking about parts of speech and how you can do typology without even assuming the existence of nouns verbs or adjectives ahead of time uh with the help of the paper parts of speech systems and word order by i will read the names uh case hengeveld jan reykov and anna Sieveska. i think i mostly got that thank you Thank you, Aiden, because I have no confidence that I can pronounce those correctly. <laughs> I don't have a lot. That is very nicely pronounced as you said those names. Um, so yeah, we're going to start right away with the content of the paper. I'm going to give a brief overview. Um, basically, the paper is um, proposing a new way of classifying part of speech systems, which have been, as we said, um, nouns adjectives verbs adverbs they have already been kind of accepted into the whole um descriptive linguists um cookbook basically that they're one of the main parts even though there's um there are languages which do not really uh, exhibit um this clear-cut distinction so that's actually what the paper is going to talk about it's going to talk about um how to divide these part of speech systems into a spectrum featuring Around about seven systems, uh, seven types, uh, but with some in between. Basically, it's a bit more complicated than those seven types. Um, but then it moves on to providing some hypotheses about uh, how word order and part of speech systems interact and how they influence influence each other. Um, we are going to focus here about uh, on the um, first part, on the part of speech part, because we felt like that was actually a bit more interesting. Um, the correlation with word order is pretty interesting too, but we decided to focus on that first part. So first of all, there's a really interesting table, um, which basically says tells you um, how to refer to those syntactic and uh, uh, syntactic slots and how to call them basically. What what are the labels that are used in that paper specifically? And basically, you have the head and the modifier, which is pretty clear, and then the head of the predicate phrase and the head of the referential phrase combined with the modifier of the predicate phrase and the modifier of the referential phrase. And then you have you have basically um, a two-by-two two matrix um, with with the head of the predicate phrase being the verb, because that's actually pretty, pretty self-explanatory. Um, the non is the head of the referential phrase, whereas the modifiers of those two are the manner adverb and the adjective respectively. Um, so they talk about um, this approach of um, dividing um, part of speech into three types. And before we move on to that, we're actually going to talk about the data set because that's pretty interesting. Yeah, too, I, right? I definitely wanted to draw some attention to the data set because I definitely feel like a lot of the times, especially if you're coming at things as a non-typologist and trying to do like, I don't know, computational studies or something, you can get data sets that you didn't really think too hard about and, you know, maybe aren't the greatest. Uh, this data set I think is pretty fantastic um, in part because one, there is one 
well, there are two Indo-European languages on this list. That's it. They are Polish and Hittite. There's no English, there's no French. Hittite is already kind of, you know, definitely out there in terms of Indo-European languages. Yeah, there's no, there's no Italian, there's no French, there's no Spanish, there's no German, there's no English. Like, they're going out of their way to try and find, like, other languages that aren't just, like, the languages we're just used to basing all of our conclusions on, because they're the languages we think about all the time anyway. And... Instead of those, they've come up with a list of a bunch of really interesting languages from all different parts of the world, some of which have been long gone, like Hurrian and Sumerian, some of which are still fairly large. They have Japanese on the list, and that, that and Mandarin Chinese, Hungarian, those are some larger names on the list. They've got Georgian, that's fairly well known. But then they've got other stuff, they've got Etruscan, they've got um, Abkhaz, they've got Basque, they've got uh, Kayardit, which is a famous language off the coast of northern Australia that does all sorts of fun things. They've got Hishkariana from uh, the Amazon, Guarani. They've got uh, Tuscarora from the southeastern U.S. They've got Warao. They've got this huge variety of languages from all over the place, stuff from sub-Saharan Africa. Not a whole lot of Bantu as well to try and keep this... this data set from getting biased in any one direction. I think probably the most they have from any one family is three languages, maybe four. So they've done a really good job of trying to keep all of this as wide as possible. So it's not like, well, 50 out of our 100 languages all do this this way. And like, oh yeah, those 50 languages are all Indo-European because you weren't thinking too hard about your data set when you built it kind of a thing. This is probably, I mean, for, for a data set that's, what, 30 or 40 languages, this is probably about as, like, wide a net as you could cast reasonably. I think they did a very good job of it. Indeed. And coming from a South American slash Amazonian perspective, which is um, my main interest, area of interest, um, it's actually pretty nice to see, for example, Hishkariana, as you said, um, and also Guarani, uh, but interestingly, um, the like classification, the tech, what do you call it, um, phylogeny of um, the languages they gave in that table is pretty interesting. It's like, very had, bad. I don't know. Yeah, it's some macro families that um, aren't really accepted that widely, like Amerind or yeah, I don't know, Indo-Pacific. I've never heard of yeah. that. Uh, it's yeah, it's pretty interesting. Co um, Korean, Japanese, Ainu. Like, okay, Korean and Japanese, I get why you would put them together, even though it turns out that's not actually a thing. But, like, I have no idea why anyone who's ever seen Ainu would ever group it with Japanese. It's just totally different. All right. Um, I was just going to say about the phylogeny that it's basically very messy that's yeah what... that that side of things is not super great but like i don't think it really matters for this purpose because even if you put a decent phylogeny on this you've still got a, a wonderfully varied set of actual languages to be looked at that's right and i think that's also the point where you should focus on because who cares about some diachronic uh, notions in the background of this paper when it's not even about like it's not the paper is not about classifying those languages. It's just about stuff that happens in these languages, and for that, it's actually pretty doing a pretty good job. Yeah, I mean, it's important to not just be like, oh, actually, half the paper is all from one family. It turns out they were just wrong about it. But like, that's not yeah, actually really the diversity. A here. Yeah, 
the diversity is definitely the most important part mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. So, um, getting into the meat, then uh, I want to come back to to this figure one real quick on the way to the big table, um, just to point out that uh, they are using the words verb and noun and adjective in this uh, four-part table, along with manner adverb, um, not as pre-existing categories that they are trying to find definitions for, uh, but rather they're using them as labels, convenient labels for their own definition of a thing that they see happening. Yes, and this thing that they see happening is on sort of what I would describe as a more fundamental level. Yeah. It's coming from some of the basic logical principles of how human languages work. Like you have this head modifier dichotomy that is just like a property of language, basically. And then you also have to have, you know, some way to refer to reference. Therefore, you have referential phrases and you have to have some way to indicate that things are happening or states are true. Therefore, you have these predicate phrases. So it's not like there are verbs because we're used to having verbs. Like it's, these are properties of how all human language seems to be structured, how it kind of has to be structured. It seems like, I mean, I think people, maybe conlingers play with this a little bit and do different things, but it's a very, very deep level fundamental property of language that I don't think there's any reason to doubt is universal. Yep. That's just how it works. And so we're working from those very, very bottom level foundation principles to build up this understanding of what's going on here. And I think you also need to consider the, like, tradition. Like, obviously, tradition is not always good, but in some cases, stuff like defining the verb as being the head of the predicate phrase, that's just something very basic. Um, Because lots of people use verb that way, and that's why you should probably call the head of a predicate phrase verb and not noun. Yes. Like, that's just the tradition part of it. If, and, if, um, if that's actually a syntactic category that makes sense. Um, yes. So that, yes. and that, that'll take us on to uh, the next table. So figure five, where they actually lay out their part of speech systems. Um, because what, what this table one is saying is not, Anything that shows up in the head of a predicate phrase is a verb. What it's saying is, if you have a part of speech which is lexically specified to have its primary role be serving as the head of a predicate phrase, then we're going to call that a verb. But you could have other parts of speech that happen to be able to fill that role that aren't verbs. Yes, actually... It's worth it's worth bringing up the example of like Mayan languages that have more than one noun cl- or more than one word class that can head predicate phrases. There are things that we would call normal verbs that work like we would expect verbs in other languages to work. They agree with the subject. You can do a bunch of tense stuff on them, well, aspect stuff on them, etc. Then there's this whole other class of things called statives that can still head predicate predicate phrases. But they don't get any of that person 
agreement morphology they don't get any of that aspect morphology they have their own entirely different much reduced set of things so they're clearly different word classes they behave in very different ways but both of them can head predicates yep just one of them is more canonical yeah so we call those verbs but like again you have to this is a great example of like we're not saying well both of them are verbs because every language has to have verbs that are you know heading predicate phrases we're saying there's two different classes of words clearly based on language family internal reasoning and we could describe them in terms of they both had predicate phrases because they do but we're not going to impose this external grouping on them to say these are both the same kind of thing they're just not yeah yeah and reminds me of um the situation in many actually quite a bunch of native north american languages like especially from the salish family uh mm -hmm. where you have like well the whole um, concept of like predicate and like also reminds me of the um of the example from Tuscarora where you have like a verb which through additional morphology can actually act as like, all other types uh, which is actually pretty cool like um I when I saw that um example from Tuscarora um like um the boy looked at the goat and it's basically literally it just means he's young he looked at it it stinks which is super <laughs> interesting and super nuanced yep. um and also the notion of like i think we're going to talk about that later but the notion of omnipredicative omnipredicative omnipredicate i'm not going to try to pronounce it uh, from omnipredicativity yes. thank you uh, we can cut that <laughs> uh, um that one from from now what um yep which is like um, super, super, super yeah. cool. Um, also reminds me of this non-universality of word classes. Like, mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, so, so let's look at uh, figure five, their actual part of speech system typology here. These authors divide part of speech systems into seven different basic types. And we start off at, at the top where there is just one lexical class which they label contentives and you can identify contentives because they are words that can serve in any of those four basic functional positions without any special extra morphological machinery um, it, you can put a contentive in the head of a predicate phrase, the head of a referential phrase, uh, the modifier of a referential phrase, modifier of a predicate phrase, and it all just works. If we move up to type two, then you get a split between different lexical parts of speech. So you start to see languages that have things that we're going to call verbs because they are lexical items that have their basic function as the head of a predicate phrase, and they can't be anywhere else without doing something special, like applying some sort of morphological derivation operation. But then your other remaining part of speech is just the non-verb, and a non-verb can go in any of the other three slots. One more step up, class three, you've got verbs, nouns, and then modifiers. So we have things that primarily serve as the heads of predicates, and we've got things that primarily serve as the heads of referential phrases, and we're going to call those verbs and nouns because that makes sense. It matches our intuition about what verbs and nouns should be. 
But then there's just modifiers, and modifiers can modify anything. And so the these first three segments, these first three classes, are referred to as the flexible part of speech systems, because there is at least one part of speech in your system that can flexibly fill at least two different functional roles. Uh, then right in the middle of the chart, we get the differentiated part of speech system, where there are distinct lexical classes to fill all four of those basic functional roles. This is what we've got in English, so it kind of seems like the default. We've got verbs, nouns, adjectives, and adverbs as separate parts of speech. Yeah, that's also the point where many like linguists, especially from like the 1930s, 40s, 50s, like back then, you I don't think you were that um well specialized, not specialized. You were that yeah, you're lacking that wide experience of different kinds of languages, and so you're just sort of you know you learned these classes from exactly. traditional Western philology. Yeah, and you forced them upon the language and. It, nowadays we can see when we look at the documents from back then well it just doesn't make sense why does he call that a uh, adverb if it's just if it can work as a modifier without extra uh, overt morphology which um nowadays obviously uh we just say we look at that and say well hold up um but i think back then it wasn't uh, basically the tradition and uh, not only the tradition it was basically the mindset of the people of not of the people of the linguists uh back then And now it's very uh, progressive to have like this kind of differentiation nowadays. Yeah, the the idea that you can have a language that doesn't have a verb is still like pretty darn revolutionary. I yep. I was absolutely I was absolutely shocked to come across even one paper that has contentive just going all the way across that whole row of the table. <laughs> So let's get on to the bottom half. So five, six, and seven are the rigid classes where we don't have all of the basic slots filled and there is no part of speech that can natively fill more than one functional slot. So class five, you've got verbs, nouns, and adjectives, but there's just no basic part of speech that can fill the function of a manner adverb. You have to do something special to derive something into that position, or maybe you just don't have that slot in the syntax and you use some other mechanism for describing manners. And then when we go up to, to class six, we lose adjectives. So now your only parts of speech are verbs and nouns. And again, if you want to describe stuff in any way, then you have to do something special. And then in class seven, there's just verbs. And this is where we have to mention omnipredicativity, uh, because exactly. that that is a word that is used to describe both ends of this spectrum, which function completely differently. The idea of omnipredicativity is that any word can serve as the head of a predicate. But there's two totally different ways you can get to that point. Either the only words that you have are the ones that are lexically specified to basically serve as the head of a predicate, or you've got contentives, which aren't lexically specified as being restricted to any function and can just go anywhere. And so, like, Nahuatl is a good example of a language with contentives, whereas whether or not class seven languages exist is uh, something of a contentious topic. But 
you can find people arguing that uh, Statimchets, for example, is a class 7 language. All of its basic lexical items are predicates. And if you want to fill in the head of a referential phrase, you have to explicitly nominalize it or use a headless relative or something. Yeah, and that's why I referred to Salish slangs uh, earlier, um, because I think that was the example I was thinking of. And I think another interesting dimension that you could add to that table, um, which is might be a bit difficult um, depicting it graphically, would be to see, for example, in class five, or where you don't have a part of speech that uh, expresses the modifier of a predicate phrase, and you have like other uh, parts of speeches which uh, can take overt morphology to be used in that way. Would be interesting to say to see which of the other um, parts parts of speech, which uh, which ones can take morphology to mm, use mm -hmm. to be used in that way. So maybe in that um, language, adjectives can be derived to fill that slot, or maybe it's a noun with an uh, with some overt morphology. Um, and I think that would be another interesting perspective um, to have, because that's kind of missing from mm -hmm. the table. And I mean, you could also just explain it in prose, which would probably work too, but would be a bit more concise. One, one thing I also want to mention is that this isn't necessarily saying that like in, in a, you know, in a language that is differentiated, for example, where every there's a there's a basic word class for all four of these categories, there's not some way to get one word, a word from one into another, like there are definitely ways to turn verbs into nouns and nouns into verbs in English, for example. There's, you know, you can do that. It's more about, like, do you have basic word classes? And especially, I feel like, do you have, like, significantly large basic word classes? Uh, to the point that I'm not entirely sure that English should be class four. I think it should probably, it's closer to class five in my book, because most of its manner adverbs are derived Yes. You know, we have quickly, we have slowly, we have, you know, all those sorts of things. Most of them are with, like, Lee or something. Um, compared to, like, Japanese, which is a very clear example of, of a differentiated one where every there are, there are these, there's multiple classes of, like, predicate modifier words that are just basic. There's, like, yeah, piles of adverbs like kosori and yappari and... Amari and so on. You've got um, like iconicity or I iconic. There's there's a word for that that I don't remember. Um, idiophones. That's the word. Yeah, they've got they've got idiophones that you can put in here. Sometimes you have to have an adverbializer particle attached. Sometimes you don't. Some of it depends on the word class. But like there are these clear, relatively large and very common classes of predicate modifier, basic predicate modifier words, whereas English English has a few, maybe, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Um, but obviously in Japanese, there are, there are ways you can turn an, ad, an adjective into, a, into an adverb very easily. You can turn a verb into an adverb very easily. It's just that you have these basic word classes that fill these roles by default, rather than they have to come from somewhere else, like languages further down the table, like five and six. Also, the point of like zero derivation and zero conversion i think that was what you were mentioning earlier in english where we have like an uh, 
Do you have a nice example of zero conversion right now? Because I can't think of any. I just verbed that noun. Oh. <laughs> Verbing weirds language in the words of Calvin and Hobbes. Mm -hmm. um, but also another interesting point is like the situation in Caribbean languages where you have basically two opposing um, opinions on the whole adjective deal. Uh, because there are some um, linguists, like for example Spike Gilday or Sergio Meira, um, who argue that there is actually not a dedicated adjective class, but rather there is uh, like property concepts which are encoded by either nouns or adverbs, uh, which it shows that not all word classes are universal. And I think that's one of the main points of the entire paper, which is uh, very important to state. Uh, but also that's interesting because there's like Dixon, like uh, RMW Dixon, which who's pretty, pretty well known in linguistics, uh, who's, uh, who was originally arguing against that, uh, who said, well, adjectives are uh, universal in that sense. Um, and here's some arguments for that. And then like uh, Spike Gilday and Sergio Meira published a paper on spe specifically on property concepts and Caribbean languages. Interesting, interesting discussion either way. I don't want to get too deep into it, but I can recommend the paper. Uh, maybe we can link it in the description. Yeah, that would be good. Uh, one other thing to note is that this table makes some interesting predictions about like, it's not only like how many word classes do you have and how do they interact with each other, but it's also which ones do you have? And there's a very clear prediction here that head of predicate phrase is the most likely to be a distinct word class. Modifier of predicate phrase is least likely to be a distinct word class. And there's this sort of progression that you get. Which also yields a hierarchy that is given somewhere in that paper. Yes. And... Yeah, I'm, I have some questions about how exactly that works out, because thinking about like Japanese and Korean, for example, I don't know if Korean has the, the same sort of modifier of predicate phrases, things like adverbs that Japanese has. Korean, its adjectives are just verbs. They are morphologically identical to verbs. There's probably a few ways in which like the fact that it's a property concept word in enables it to do something that a normal verb can't do or something but like for most intents and purposes they're just verbs um japanese has a class of adjectives some of its adjectives that head predicate phrases and that's basically how they function even if morphologically they're distinct from actual verbs so i guess it, it does have its own class of adjectives so i guess you would still put it in four but I'd be interested to see if, like, Korean might be an example of a language that has manner adverbs as a basic class, but not adjectives as a basic class. I mean, obviously, any typology is kind of a guess in the end. There's always a chance that you're going to find some language that just doesn't do that thing and just doesn't fit anywhere. And sometimes you say, oh, this upends our entire way of conceiving this. And sometimes you say, that one's just weird, you know. Some languages is just like, well, this property just doesn't apply, so it doesn't fit anywhere in our typology. And sometimes it's, you know, there's just one language hanging out there doing its own thing. Uh, definitely in my master's thesis, I had to set up a category for exactly one language. So, yeah, you know, you do have those things. 
I also think what will be interesting to say regarding typology, a more reference grammar is structured around typology, which is um, obviously double the effort. Yes. <laughs> because you need to, uh, well, document a language, which is alone a huge undertaking and a huge project. But you also, if you also are able to incorporate typological um, tendencies and like how this language um, disproves that universal, whatever, that would be mm-hmm. very interesting mm-hmm. to read, in my opinion. Um, I haven't seen lots of those there are, I've, I've actually tried to implement it in a conlang but i would love to see it in a natural language sometimes you get ones that will you know the whoever's documenting this is really familiar with the the language family or the the linguistic area that this is from and so they yeah. can put it in that kind of a context but that's often just usually um like a chapter at the beginning like in the uh, methodological background uh, part and i I'd, I'd love to see something that is like throughout the document you just have um, subtle hints at like um okay this according to the typology of whatever uh, 2016 this language falls into the classification type of i don't know uh, agent oriented participles <laughs> and i no clue um but something like that you know um that would be very very interesting absolutely cool to, yeah to, to and see, it is i mean you're, you're right it is extra effort i'm always of the opinion that like all linguists and all non-linguists should know more things about more languages and more things about like lesser known languages and like okay sure in a perfect world it also takes a lot of effort to gain that knowledge and like sometimes it's just not legitimately worth the effort all right logan uh you want to continue with the um yeah with our script because we actually (laughs) have a script uh we just keep well um taking some uh we we wander it's fine that's a good segue into talking about the intermediate part of speech types, because not all languages fall entirely into one of these seven categories. You can end up kind of halfway in between. Uh, but the way that works is different in the flexible regime versus the rigid regime. So up in the flexible half of the classification system, you can have a situation where there are some words which are flexible and can fill multiple roles, and other words which are more finely divided. So maybe, you know, you have some non-verbs, but then you also have some just nouns and some just modifiers. So you would call that language uh, type 2 slash 3. But then on the on the rigid side, the way that they define intermediate classes is by whether a particular part of speech is open or closed. So for example, if you have nouns, but only a small closed class of nouns, then that might be categorized as a type 6 slash 7 rather than just a 6 or just a 7. If you had no nouns, it would be clearly a 7. If you had an open class of nouns, it would be clearly a 6. But when you have a closed class, that's kind of in between. Um, so that that's how we get a, a little finer division of the scale. Yeah, I think I think a good way to think about that on both sides is like this is a language where depending on the exact like lexeme you're trying to use, either it falls into one class or it falls into the other one. Yes. And then uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the examples that they give for classifying languages. I don't think we need to to spend, you know, 15 minutes just reading out all of the example sentences in this paper, but there are... Yeah. 
It works better in print than in audio, for yes. sure. Yeah, you can try to pronounce the what I, 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 I don't uh, think I'm going to try to pronounce them. I'll just talk about why they're cool. <laughs> okay. Because that's fair. <laughs> this distinction between uh, warao quote-unquote adjectives and garo quote-unquote adjectives really helps to exemplify why it's useful to have this categorization system of part of speech types. Because warao is a language that is more traditionally described as having noun-like adjectives. And so things that would be adjectives in English can serve as the heads of referential phrases, so they look a lot like nouns. Whereas in Garo, the things that we would translate as adjectives in English behave more like verbs. They, they can be the heads of predicate phrases all by themselves. And so traditional typology would say, oh yeah, there's adjectives, but there's like nouny kinds of adjectives, and then there's verby kinds of adjectives. But what this paper points out is that actually what's going on here is completely different in each of those languages. It's not that there's a class of adjectives that kind of acts verby or kind of acts nouny. Rather, in Warao, you've got a type 2 flexible part of speech system where you've got a bunch of non-verbs. And so a single part of speech can fill referential heads or referential modifiers. Whereas in Garo, you've got a type 6 rigid system, and they're just aren't any adjectives. And so if you want to modify a noun, you have to use something like a relative clause. You can't just stick the thing that could also be a noun or could also be a verb into the modifier slot like you can in Warao. Instead, you have to do an extra syntactic operation to figure out how to fit a square peg into a round hole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think it would be very interesting to see the adjectives in Caribbean languages, as I mentioned before, um, thing. I, it would be interesting to analyze it using this uh, sevenfold. Oh, basically, actually, it's probably more like... 13-way division when you include all the in-betweens. Yeah, exactly. It would be interesting to analyze like the Caribbean system like that. I know there's Ishkariana, which is Carib, and also has that split as far as I know. Um, there's Ishkariana in the data, um, but they don't cite any um, examples from it. It would be interesting to see the different Carib systems uh, analyzed using that which is obviously for me as a hobby amazonianist uh, would be something very cool maybe i'm gonna think about yeah. that in the future some interesting yeah. research ideas perhaps one other thing worth mentioning i think is that i don't know that this paper this paper sort of provides a framework for this but i don't know that it mentions it specifically but in the the Rikyuan languages that we've been reading grammars on recently in our grammar group there is a sort of class of adjective mm -hmm. roots that behaves differently from nouns and verbs, but those adjective roots never stand alone without some sort yeah. of morphology. You can compound them with nouns, but if you want to have them just modify a noun in a phrase, then you've got to turn them into a verb and then make that verb a relative mm -hmm. clause. And if you want them to be a predicate for a head, they've got to turn them into a verb. You've, there's always some sort of morphology that you have to stick on these roots. So I would I would sort of hazard a guess that that puts some of these Nukuan languages in like class five or six, where uh, there's, there's probably some cases where you have just like a plain adjective, but most of the time you only have verbs and nouns despite the fact that you have a third class of roots, but syntactically those roots have to be put into one of those other classes before you can use them. Interesting. 
we also need to talk about zero derivation because especially when english is your baseline like there are a lot we have a lot of of (laughs) words that can be either verbs or nouns and you can verb anything in english if you want to um but does that mean that there's no distinction between verbs and nouns in english not really because what's going on there is is just a different process from having a single class of contentives the authors address that issue in section 3.7 on the semantics of flexible lexemes so the there's quite a lot of verbiage here but i think we can summarize the idea as basically being that a flexible lexeme has a single vague sense and its different interpretations in different syntactic positions have to come from the syntax itself, which means that it will always be predictable. So if you take something that looks like it should be a noun and you stick it into a predicate head position, then what you get as a verby kind of meaning is always going to be completely predictable, no matter which nouny meaning kind of thing you put there. And vice versa, if you have a contentive word that feels really verby, but you decide to use it as the head of a referential phrase, what it ends up meaning is always going to be completely clear and predictable all the time. Yeah, compared to... English, for like an example, like English take, a take is very specifically somebody's like opinion about Mm -hmm. some sort of a thing. It's not just the act of grabbing a thing or any other sort of much more basic meaning that you might just expect from like taking the word take and making it a verb or making it a noun. It's, it acquires by this derivational process a very specialized meaning I can't think of any other good examples right now, but that's that's one that came to mind of you're doing more to this word than just putting it in a different slot in the sentence. You're actually deriving it yes. into a new lexical item, even if there's no visible form change. And this also yields the question, what is basic derived semantics? Which is itself um, very, uh, well, hard to define too. Like what semantic path is more basic than another semantic path? What kind of lexicalization is as another? That can be language specific. Like the key point is not that there will be a universal derivation path that tells you what a nouny thing means when you use it as a verb, but rather that within a particular language, there will always be a predictable meaning. Um, and that's that's what allows you to identify mm. it as flexibility rather than as zero marked derivation. All right. So moving on, we have the actual like hypothetical uh, part, like pertaining to hypotheses, um, the part of that paper, which we talked about earlier, briefly mentioned it, um, word order and how it interacts with those part of speech systems that we looked at earlier it's it's in the title that means it needs to be uh, relevant um it's not that relevant for our episode today but i'm still gonna briefly talk about it basically um they have a new system like they have a huge Mm -hmm. table with a lot of data which i'm not gonna go over but there's also some interesting stuff um they define 
which was interesting. They define the subject of an intransitive sentence as the single argument occurring within a sentence. But the weird part is the subject of a transitive sentence is the constituent that shows the same syntactic behavior as that of the single argument of an intransitive sentence, which completely <laughs> excludes um, the whole notion of ergativity. I mean, not really, but uh, it kind of disregards the fact that sometimes, like, I, th I think they refer to the A of a transitive sentence by, the, by that phrase, but they disregard that the O can also act accordingly to the S of a transit intransitive. They are really trying to be pretty pre-theoretical here, and identifying something as ergative mm -hmm. or nominative is making a theoretical judgment which is not necessarily relevant to their analysis. So the fact that they That's define a subject true. in this way could just be that, you know, we need something really, really simple and straightforward that works for That's every true. single yeah. language in our extremely diverse sample. So we're just going to go with this. Uh, but moving on to the actual content of section four, they basically connect this part of speech systems with word order and um, have a kind of new uh, system of labeling word order where they don't use the traditional part of S-V-O-O-V-S as we know it, for example, from Greenberg. There is instead the, first of all, there is the predicate order, which is like predicate initial, predicate medial, predicate final. And there's also the uh, phrase internal thing <laughs> where there is like HM for head modifier, MH for modifier head and MHM for both of them, which is like alternating or both Combined. Yes, and um, I, I like that a lot better than the traditional subject, object, whatever, in part, again, because subject and object aren't always useful terms, and also because usually a lot of that word order has more to do with information structure than it actually has to do with just like, you always have the subject before the object. It's like, no, you always have the topic before the rest of the clause. So this this helps capture that a little bit better. Yeah, I was also reminded of topicalization strategies because I've, I've read a, with my reading group, the last paper we read was on topic and focus basic basic that's overview. the good stuff and there was some <laughs> strategies yeah it's good stuff it's really good stuff uh, yes it I was think your thesis wasn't focused wasn't yep. it yeah very nice yeah and then in section five quickly talks about hypotheses um which is given on page 546 there's a general hypothesis and there's uh, several other hypotheses but we're not going to talk about that instead we're going to wrap it up for this episode and yeah, Aiden is going to talk about what we're going to do next time. Yeah, so next week I think I'm going to bring a paper by Larry Hyman on so like this week we talked about here's a typological system that's really pretty darn good that is set up based on good principles and good data. And next week I'm going to bring a paper about pitch accent, which is a relic of a typological system that is not super well set up. And this is a paper demonstrating why that typological categorization doesn't really seem to hold in the face of the data. Mm -hmm.